Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. Your hosts, Russell and Dr. Pete. We're solution architects based out of Australia, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tech Chat. My name's Russ, and I have Dr. Pete with me as always. Hello, Dr. Pete. Hey, Russ, and welcome back, everybody. It's good to be back as always, and uh, this is going to be a very action-packed show, Russ. Don't you think so? It is indeed. We've got lots of fun stuff to talk about. Now, before we do that, I just wanted to do a quick shout-out to our friends in New Zealand. I was in New Zealand uh, this week for the AWS Summit in a very, very sunny Auckland, and uh, met with lots of customers who were doing some fantastic stuff on the AWS platform and met quite a few listeners of the show as well. So if you're in New Zealand and you're listening to the show, uh, welcome back. Hey, guys. We love you. <laughs> we do. Like everybody else. All right. So um, in this show, we're going to cover a whole bunch of interesting things. And, you know, I was speaking at an event. So before we kick off, uh, I was speaking at an event just the other night, and I had this crazy idea talking to some of the people after I spoke uh, about the new roles of the chief executive officers in organizations, Russ. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the idea was all the CXOs should have the C replaced with cloud. What do you think of that? Give me an example. Give me an example. Sell it to me. Well, so, so if you're a chief technology officer, you know, much more of your time is now probably spent being the cloud technology officer looking at cloud. Uh, if, right? Yes. So I mean, you think there of the cloud, go. it's becoming all-encompassing. There's so much in the cloud space. And if you just look at us, uh, we launch you know, so many new features and services on an almost daily basis here. Uh, so if, you, if you're someone who happens to be the you know, chief financial officer, when you think about cloud economics and you think about potentially you know, how much you spend on AWS and you look at maybe uh, purchasing reserved instances, that's a cloud financial officer. So there's, a, there's another role that I've just Sorry. invented. Cloud economics, did you, is that your term or did you read that somewhere? Uh, that's... That's that's my term. I've been using it for years. So so you've heard it here on Tech Chat. Uh, cloud economics, one of my one of my favorite terms, which is meant to encompass all the things you do with, you know, architecting and reviewing how much things actually cost. Because as architects, many 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 times we uh, now spend more brain cycles focusing on how much will this service technology cost. Uh, the business uh, once it's fully assembled, and uh, you can make some really interesting decisions based upon pure economics of a consumption of a service. That makes sense? Perfect sense, perfect sense. And I think the interesting thing, Peter, is as you move between different deployment models as well, so as you move away from uh, from server-based pricing into more kind of serverless pricing, um, that's a whole kind of different discussion around how you you cost-optimize that. That's right. And you think about, you know, the other role, for example, which is not so popular in APEC, but in other parts of the world, like the US, the, you know, chief revenue officer, which could become now the cloud revenue officer role. And that's somebody who potentially looks at the digital channels is more and more bricks and mortar businesses go online. You start to find that there are more digital channels like the e-commerce sites that most organizations now are moving to uh, will become the most profitable or you know generating a lot of, you know, income for a business. So these this channels uh, also need to be monitored. And if that wasn't enough, I actually think also that the cloud execution officer, it's somebody who leads uh, the team of, uh, of folks in a, perhaps a cloud center of excellence in an organization, 
and the cloud center of excellence is really is a group of people working together within an organization, usually are you know an enterprise, who are predominantly focused on making sure cloud adoption is successful, new projects are initiated, uh, activities are kicked off the right way. There's some standards in place, like tagging, for example. Uh, so the yeah, cloud execution officer, the chief, so the cloud finance officer, the cloud tech officer, uh, the cloud revenue officer, all these guys could be sitting together in one team. Uh, driving mass cloud adoptions. So how's that? I love it. I actually think it's such a good idea that we should pause the recording of the show and you should go and register those domain names right now before, because <laughs> think- once it gets out there, someone else will do it and make money off your idea, Pete. But you know what? That's okay. Uh, yeah, I'm not planning on I'm making a living on a domain. I'm, I'm sure, you know, Cyber Squad could re- generate some revenue, but probably not enough to re- retire on, Russ. <laughs> Now, enough of a distraction. I think it's worthwhile um, having a bit of a chat about the uh, P2 instances, Russ, and I'd love you to talk about it as opposed to me getting excited about it. Well, I'd love to talk about it because I don't know that you can talk about it without going over the top because okay. you love you love it so much. So we have talked about P2 instances before uh, because they have been released, but they are now available in Tokyo and also Sydney. So we thought... Um, apart from bringing you that news, if you happen to use those regions, we also might just revisit what the P2s are because they're an amazing piece of kit. Uh, and, of course, they're the ones that have got a lot of GPUs in them as well as obviously the yeah. CPUs. Uh, and it's interesting when you read the specs of just the GPU specs, uh, that's kind of often more than you'd see in a normal machine in terms of CPUs. So, for example, um, obviously there's different sizes, but you can go up to 16 GPUs in these instances, giving you a total video memory only of 192 gig, which is going to give you, and I can tell you're getting excited now, 40,000 parallel processing cores, yielding, get this, 70 teraflops of single precision floating point and 23 teraflops of double precision floating point performance. Now that's lots. Which is lots. And that's in addition. So that's just the GPU stuff. And then, of course, the instances mm. then have, you know, up to 732 gig of host memory and up to 64 VPCUs of, of this, you know, just normal CPUs. Um, now, in addition to that, uh, again, the different sizes have different networking requirements. But at the top end, you're getting, you know, we've talked before about the, the elastic network adapter, which can give you 20 gigabits of network bandwidth within a placement group. So... These things are absolute beasts, Pete. And for people who are working on some of the uh, workloads like deep learning and fluid dynamics and computational finance and seismic analysis, genomics, all that fun stuff, uh, rendering as well, obviously, um, all of those workloads, they just love um, this type of parallel processing. So really exciting stuff if you're in, uh, in a region that now has a P2. It's a, it's a pretty phenomenal beast. And yes, as you were saying, I am getting excited because uh, these are very, very cool. Um, and if that wasn't enough, um, for those of you who've been playing with LightSail, um, you can now start getting access to a LightSail in Asia-Pacific regions as well, which is pretty cool because LightSail is now available in 10 of our regions, um, which also includes recently here, Tokyo, Mumbai, Singapore, and Sydney. Now, when you think about what LightCell is, LightCell is the easiest way to launch and manage virtual private service on AWS. So you get everything you need to jumpstart your website super, super fast. Uh, so you get a virtual machine, you get an SSD-based storage 
be EBS, you get uh, data transfer, DNS management, and a static IP address for a really low price. Uh, and what's really interesting about this is that these prices start at just $5 per month, Russ. Wow. So if you want to start up a Linux box and do some, you know, host your website, uh, host your kids' uh, Minecraft server, or whatever it is that your heart desires, <laughs> um, you can actually start off only paying five bucks a month, which is really, really cost effective. Um, which also means that you can take, you know, your ideas to market really quickly. And in fact, um, when this opened up in Sydney, I hopped onto the uh, Lightcell console, and you know what? I couldn't find Sydney or anybody else. And I was so used to condition to look at the top right-hand corner to change my regions. Uh, but the LightCell console is a little bit different. So if you hop on it, you'll see it's got a very different uh, user experience and a different color scheme. Uh, when you launch the instance, that's when you actually get asked to uh, select, a re- launch, select a region you want to launch your virtual machine in. Uh, and that, uh, that was the actual trick. So for those of us who are long-time AWS console users, if you are going to use LightCell, uh, just uh, go slow. Uh, it is actually designed for a slightly different audience, uh, for people who are perhaps not as technically inclined as uh, some of the old-time AWS users. It's a really great console. Uh, it's, I think it's so simple that my kids could use, Russ. Fantastic, Pete. Now, you mentioned uh, hosting a Minecraft server for your kids. Do you do that? I, I have in the past, yes. Uh, my, my, my son <laughs> and all his school friends were playing and until it all ended in tears when one of his friends actually came and completely demolished it. Uh, and that's when he discovered the, uh, the joys of backups, which we didn't actually have. So he oh, lost his Minecraft world. Oh, no, no. I was going to say, I was going to say, were you the coolest dad, you know, in the group? Because they'd say, oh, yeah, Pete, you know, um, yeah, Pete, uh, Pete, Minecraft <laughs> server for his son. Awesome. Well, this could be all avoided if you are doing that because you can do a backup. I take a snapshot oh, of your no. light cell instance. Uh, so you can be the coolest dad and uh, your kids won't be crying when their friends come and demolish their Minecraft world. <laughs> now, from Minecraft to Microsoft, Pete, I saw that there was a quick start update, which was to deploy a remote desktop gateway. Um, mm-hmm. And my question to you is, uh, I know what remote desktop is, so I can RDP into an instance. I get that. What does the gateway do for you? Yes. So so if you are running um, your infrastructure, so, so RDP is great because it connects you from your client machine to your Windows server, and RDP gives you a graphical user interface. It also gives you... Uh, um, the ability to map local drives and devices, all that good stuff. Um, but if you've got a VPC and you've got all your servers sitting really, really deep inside the VPC on private subnets, it's really hard to get to those. And generally, you need some kind of a bastion machine to be able to have access to that from the public internet in the, uh, in the public subnets and then use that instance to hop into your private infrastructure. So in, in the Microsoft world, that's called a remote desktop gateway, which is a proxy. Right, so the Bastion oh, machine. Okay, okay. So we've we've actually updated the uh, the Quick Start, which we've had out for a while. But this Quick Start is actually quite unique because um, what we've now done is we've actually created an auto scaling group uh, that supports the deployment of up to four remote desktop gateway instances, which is really cool because a it gives you the ability to scale out when you have lots of uh, users coming through remotely into your infrastructure, but also gives you more of a HA, you know, high availability for your infrastructure um, because if a machine wants to fall over, it'll come back online. And uh, that's really, really useful because these are quite important machines. It's also worth calling out that the CloudFormation template and the deployment guide that you can read through, which explains all this stuff, uh, is actually 
highly reusable because we give you a cloud formation template uh, that you can use either from scratch to launch a remote desktop gateway into a brand new VPC, or you can deploy the gateway into an existing standalone VPC, or in, the other option is also you can deploy it into an existing VPC and join a domain. Uh, quite often the remote desktop gateways are also join a domain as well, so they can be administered and managed. So uh, yeah, the RDP gateway is a very important part of a Microsoft technology uh, stack, and it'll take you about 30, sec- 30 minutes or seconds, 30 minutes to deploy the CloudFormation template, because it does have to bring up some, um, some infrastructure, obviously, in your VPC. Uh, but it's actually really, really important because it reduces the attack vector. So RDP protocol is well known. Uh, and when you actually have a uh, remote desktop gateway deployed, it uses HTTPS. So it actually tunnels over a secure, a secure connection on port 443 via the gateway into those remote desktop um, servers that you're connecting inside your VPC, Russ. So it's a very, very useful addition. Uh, and it's also great to see that uh, we've made the cloud mission template so highly reusable in a number of different scenarios. Very, very nice, Pete. Now, now, from RDP, mm, so from RDP to Amazon Athena, which is uh, you know not quite the goddess of war in the ancient Greek mythology. Wisdom, uh, wisdom but there's some really wisdom. was it wisdom or was it also war? Oh, she's got, she's got she's actually got quite a wide portfolio. <laughs> oh, does she, <laughs> she does. Okay. She does. One of them's wisdom. There might be war in there as well. She's she's quite uh, yeah. She's got a breadth of breadth of things she looks after. But I think you want to tell us more about the Amazon Athena, I suspect, than uh, than the goddess of war. I would indeed. So as you know, because we've talked about Athena in the past, that Athena is one of our newer services that allows you to use SQL to query data that you have in S3. And it's a serverless service. So basically, you don't need to spin up a server or manage that. You basically just fire off the SQL and we'll do it for you and then give you the the result sets back. Now, initially, you could do that through the console. Then we added a JDBC driver, which was important because that kind of then opens you up to use you know, a JDBC client to run the SQL. And what we've recently just added as well, Pete, is that you can now also query Athena through the API, the SDK, and obviously a CLI as well. Very cool. Yeah, so that really opens it up. So you can, you know, you can run queries, stop queries, you know, look at the queries that are running, delete them, um, look at the query execution history, all of that kind of stuff. So again, just makes that service much easier to use and much easier to automate as well. So that's uh, that's very, very nice. And also, we've also added the support for uh, CloudTrail as well. So now, with that integration, you can log all of the user actions, you know, for governments and compliance purposes, and you can look at, you know, who's running what, et cetera, et cetera. So just, um, just adding more features to Athena um, to make it more and more usable. But uh, a lot of customers are loving Athena at the moment, Pete. Including us, I've I've been actually using it to look at some log analysis for mm. some tech chat episode downloads. So mm. uh, yeah, it's very that. cool. Perfect for that. Very very cool. Now moving on to other services. So Elasticsearch five point three is now available. Um, tell us a bit more about what's actually come along for the ride with five point three. Yes, indeed. So as many of you would know, Elasticsearch is an open source uh, search and analytics engine. Very, very popular. A lot of our customers love Elasticsearch for doing log analytics and full text search, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, a lot of customers tell us, hey, we love Elasticsearch. We don't love managing it as much. So could you Mm -hmm. please come out with a managed service, which is why we released Amazon Elasticsearch a while ago. And uh, as new versions of Elasticsearch come out, obviously we then um, update our own 
versions 2 and 5.3, as you said, has just been released. And that's got a couple yes. of couple of nice improvements. So it's bundled with Kibana 5.3. So Kibana is the visualization front end for Elasticsearch, and that's been updated as well. So that's looking, um, looking very, very nice. And uh, so some of the things in there, so there's search improvements kind of in the, in the heart of the engine. So it's powered by, um, so as, as you know, Pete, uh, Elasticsearch is powered by Lucene, Apache Lucene, yes. and that's been updated to version 6.4.2. Um, so that brings with it things like uh, a unified highlighter, which makes it easy for you to see why a document matched the query that you ran, which is very nice. Um, it's also very important because it actually tells you where where the match actually occurs. Which is mm, very nice. exa- yeah, exactly. Yeah, and whether you need to refine your your search or not. Um, a field collapsing feature, which is interesting, which allows you to to more rapidly dedupe results, which is handy. Mm-hmm. There's uh, a couple of enhancements to Kibana. So one is a new heat map, which is a, a lot of people love heat maps as a very powerful way to visualize matrix type data. So you can very quickly kind of hone in on on areas of interest. Uh, and um, a kind of top hits aggregation type of view as well, so you can kind of look at the most relevant documents that you're being aggregated, which is nice. A couple of extra plugins, so mapper size, mapper attachments, and Ukrainian analysis. So for those doing Ukrainian analysis, you can put that plugin now into Elasticsearch 5.3. And um, also curator support as well, so that's a utility that helps you to kind of simplify index management. So lots of lots of fun stuff in 5.3. So if you're an Elasticsearch user, uh, check that out. Right, so i got to confess something. I, I used to use Lucene. But Did you? Before, yeah, a long time ago when it was pre-version 1. So uh, I think uh, I'm showing my age. Yeah, you <laughs> so, are. So I've got a pop quiz. I've got a pop quiz here. Yes. All right. Who wrote both Lucene and Hadoop? I think you might know the answer. Well, funnily enough, it was a guy called Doug Cutting. And... Mm. Doug was uh, Doug's into lots of stuff. He's one of those people who is is ridiculously talented. And uh, you're right, he wrote Lucene, and uh, he also famously uh, wrote Hadoop because he was working on a web crawler called Nutch, and he was running. Which I've also used. Which you've also. <laughs> <laughs> you're just a Doug. Cutting, I am old. You're a Doug cutting groupie. I'm going to write to him and say, "I am. I'm a fanboy." <laughs> Pete Stansky, Doug cutting fanboy. Um, yeah, so he was he he wrote Nutch, which was a web crawler. This is when he was back working for Yahoo, and uh, he was running into some scalability issues. And he happened to come across the MapReduce paper, which Google had just written. And he suddenly realised he had one of those light bulb moments, as you do, realised that was the solution to his scalability problem. So he put them together, and of course, um, Hadoop was born. And uh, Ta-da. and there mm. you go. That was there was a time, Pete. Can you believe it? Where the world did not have Hadoop, a pre-Hadoop. Phase, but that's I know what it's hard to imagine. What would all the big data people think back then? I mean, big data used to be you know more than what 640 kilobytes. <laughs> it, big, back then, big data was anything that you couldn't fit into an Excel spreadsheet. That was the no, big data world now. We are, we are now. Speaking of, of more big data, mm. um, what about Amazon Aurora? Now you can do some really, really cool exports to S3. Indeed. So, so, so S3, we love S3, Pete, because obviously you can use S3 for all sorts of fun stuff. And we're starting to see more and more customers using S3 as, as their, you know, the real kind of hub of their, their data repository. Some would call it a data lake. Some would call it something else. 
potentially, but really, it's a very overloaded word, isn't it? I mean, let's just stop for a second. So this this whole data lake conversation, everyone's talking about data lakes. Mm. I don't know. I don't. They, we, I don't think we should go there now because there's a whole show where we could just we could spend a whole show talking about data lakes. We really. All right. Could. Well, let us let us know, listeners, and and, and uh, we'll give Russ the microphone for his whole data lake uh, analysis. But uh, sorry, back yeah. to S three. And and also, if you do vote for the data lake conversation, tell us whether you want me to whisper it um, or just talk in a normal tone. Uh, now, yes. So we won't get into the data lake discussion now, but. Um, S3 is becoming that that kind of central repository for data. And so and you can see where we're going with things like Athena, which obviously gives you SQL access to S3, Redshift Spectrum, which gives you the ability to run Redshift queries across S3. You know, we're kind of really integrating a lot of the processing engines into S3. And uh, and Aurora's no different. So what we're doing now is that we're allowing you to export data from a th- uh, Aurora straight into S3. Uh, now, previously you've been able to import data from S3, but now you can you can push it back into S3 as well. So the use case there, Pete, might be that you have some processing going on within Aurora, and then the output of that, you then want to add that to your S3 repository uh, for use in other applications. So you can very quickly just you know push it out into S3. Okay, so I've got a question. So how is this different from what you used to do before we released this feature? How would you get your data into S3? Because getting in is pretty straightforward. Uh, getting out was a little bit more uh, complicated, shall we say? Yeah, that's right. So what you'd have to do before is you'd have to have to run a SQL query with whatever client you happen to be using, and then once you got the result set into the client, you could then you'd have to push that into S3. So it was a two-step process, uh, not particularly scalable um, and uh, and just a bit painful. So this is a much more direct route, you know, straight from Aurora straight to S3. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of more database stuff, because we, we have changed the show a little bit. Uh, you've got a talking stick at the start of the show about databases. Normally, we sort of put you to the second, uh, you know, uh, second part of the show. But uh, I want to focus on IDS again. I want to talk about some of the cool stuff around instances. Yes. Now, I know this is a personal favorite of yours and a lot of customers Indeed. have asked for this. And it is the ability to start and stop an RDS database. Just as you can, <laughs> you can hear the people, the, the crowd screaming in, in support. Uh, so obviously you can, you've been able to do this with EC2 for, for yonks uh, and people have said, yeah. please give us the ability to do that with, with databases as well. So this applies to the engines uh, MySQL, MariaDB, Postgres, Oracle and SQL Server. And essentially it is, as we've said, you, just, you can stop the database and then when you're ready, you can you can start it up again. Now, very cool, very nice. Now, while it's stopped, um, you will be charged for the provision storage, manual snapshots, and the automated backup storage because they're obviously still taking up space. But you are not paying for the database instance hours, obviously, because that database is not running. But something does happen seven days after you stop it. It does. So. When you uh, so after seven days, it will be automatically started again, and um, I'm not quite sure why that is, Pete. But I will endeavour to find out and let let you know, listeners, as to why that happens. But just so you know that that does happen, and um, the other caveat too, which you should know, is that uh, this will only work for single AZ deployments, and not if the database is part of a read replica either source or the actual replica itself. So um, 
there are a few caveats. So we probably see it really being used for dev and test type um, type databases because most customers run their production databases 24-7. But certainly for those dev and test ones where, you know, there's data in there, you don't want to have to reload the data each time. You just want to stop it and then start it again when you want to do a bit more development. So, Russ, with the starting and stopping, are there any gotchas that uh, you need to be aware of by actually you know, doing a start and stop? Well, really, just just those ones, Pete. So, just the fact that uh, it's it's you know it's not going to work for multi AZ just for the single AZ, um, and uh, and as I said, not part of a read replica. Um, but the the nice thing is that when you start it again, it's mm-hmm. going to restore it to exactly the same config. So it's going to have the same endpoint, same database parameter groups, security groups, and option group membership. So um, so yeah, it's just going to kind of come back up again. So um, yeah, there are a couple of things you need to be aware of. But uh, but certainly, if you've got a lot of dev and test databases where you've got a use case where you just want to stop it and then start it when you want to do more testing, this is going to be perfect for you. Yeah, I think it's awesome. I mean, if you're not doing any dev overnight and all the developers happen to go home, um, why not just stop it and then restart it next morning? Um, what do you mean? Like, you what do you mean the would... developers? The developers happen to go home. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying I would, you know the global devs work twenty four by seven? Is that what you're implying? That's, no, that sounded like what you were implying. <laughs> All right. Well, there's one other cool thing that's also happening in the IDS space, and that's around Post, Postgres mm. and uh, the support for Linux huge pages. That's right. Now you know that we like to talk about big data, but in this instance, mm-hmm. we're going to talk about something huge. Now there is uh, there's something called a Linux kernel huge page. And uh, I know that you know more about this than me, so I'm going to get you to dive in in a sec. But basically, what this allows you to do now within RDS Postgres, you can turn on support for huge pages. So it's off by default, but you can turn it on. Um, And basically what that does is it just reduces some of the um, CPU time spent on memory management, especially for large database instances. Now, I know that you've... I know that when you read this, it kind of triggered off a bit of a trip down memory lane. Nostalgia? A bit of nostalgia because I know that you like to delve into memory management at a very low level. Um, so t- <laughs> tell us more about exactly what is a huge page. Well, and uh, just before I do, um, this actually applies to uh, Postgres version 9.4.11 and uh, 9.5.6 and later. Um, and 9.62 or later uh, for those of you that are actually using it. Now, so what exactly is a huge page? Well, uh, this is a bit of a trip down memory lane because uh, I used to write assembler code, Russ, long, long time ago. Why does, that not, why does that not and surprise me? I actually remember the you know pages and offsets and when the uh, x86 architecture actually went into protected mode where you could get whole flat memory which was basically, you know, 32-bit, uh, and then before it went to 64. So in the old days, <laughs> you used to have to, you know, the CPUs would do a lot of messy stuff with memory. Uh, so as an example, so the default page size, if you like, within the x86 architecture is somewhere around the 4 kilobytes, so uh, 4096 bytes. And uh, the huge pages allowed large amounts of memory to be utilized with a reduced overhead by helping the, in this case, um, something called the translation look-aside buffers, uh, which Linux actually uses in the CPU architecture. Now, these buffers are really used for mapping of virtual memory to physical memory in the actual machine. So there's some real clever voodoo going on in the um, memory management unit of a processor uh, of modern-day processors, uh, which which date back a little, little while, uh, back to my youth. 
um, whereby the CPU would actually be able to figure out which page is physically available and if not, and then if it wasn't in physical memory, you could write some really clever activities that would actually fetch the, fetch the page from disk and so on and so forth. Um, so, so the idea here with um, uh, the huge pages is that uh, we're actually increasing the size of the actual block being allocated uh, for the actual lookup. So we're actually putting more space in memory, uh, which is basically much more um, quicker to be able to you know, address a particular byte in memory uh, after going through the actual translation look aside buffers. Because there is actually a bit of an overhead in sorting out and mapping the virtual address to the actual physical address. Uh, so for those of you who are Linux users, and this is obviously for Postgres on Linux. Uh, so Linux is able to set aside a portion of physical memory to do a lot of this clever stuff. Um, in Linux 2.6 kernels, uh, the huge page is actually enabled through a config, yeah, through a config huge table flag, a page flag in fact, when a kernel is being built, uh, which basically makes it a lot quicker to be able to deal and manipulate vast amounts of memory. So yeah, so thank you for the uh, for the tour of the memory lane, Russ. Uh, it was a, a good reminder of the plumbing and uh, thank God most, most mortals don't have to deal with this stuff these days. That, that, that's true, Pete. Although while you were talking, I was just wondering whether listeners... If you would like Pete to do a two-hour deep dive on Linux kernel memory management, please let us know because we would love to. Uh, we would love to do that for you. Or perhaps Linux Linux device drivers, which is how I cut my teeth on Linux kernels many, many, many moons ago. Now moving right along to right a slightly, now, I think- slightly higher level. Absolutely, and to do with you know with health, and that's HIPAA. Uh, what's been happening in the uh, HIPAA eligibility space with our services, Russ? Well, for those of you who are not familiar with with HIPAA, HIPAA basically is the the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, uh, and it's basically legislation in the US that really talks about data privacy and security provisions for safeguarding medical information. So it holds security, obviously, to an extremely high standard. And so if services uh, are actually um, deemed to be uh, HIPAA eligible, then, um, then that's fantastic because you know that you can use them for, for PHI, which is protected health information, as opposed to PII, which is personally identifiable information. So the big news, Pete, is that we've added a bunch of services to that, uh, including CloudFront, the S3 Transfer Acceleration, AWS WAF, which is the uh, the web application firewall, and AWS Shield as well. And um, that is fantastic. So that basically adds to 20 services listed now on uh, on HIPAA. Um, so that's uh, that's really, uh, really great news if uh, you are in the health space. But also if, you, if you're doing health records management in other countries, you know, a lot of these are also equally applicable. So, uh, yeah, for those of you who are doing um, and storing information in AWS, uh, yeah, you don't have to be US-based. It can be in other parts of the world. So there are many, many parallel um, equivalents to HIPAA all, all around the globe. That's true. That's true. Now, kind of on the uh, along the line of uh, security, Pete, tell us a little bit about um, what's happening in Amazon Cognito. Yes, yeah, so Amazon Cognito uh, has gone into public beta for a built-in user 
uh, sign-in, uh, which actually allows SAML federation for Cognito user pools, which is a, a bit of a mouthful. Mm. Uh, but for those of you who remember, I've talked about Cognito in the past, and the idea of Cognito is the ability to be able to manage the users. So there's, there's the sign-ups, the login for authentication, password resets, all that good stuff. And generally, you would use um, Amazon Cognito user pools to enable web and mobile application developers to quickly build basically um, that user management function into your applications. So what we've now actually added is the uh, the ability to provide integrated SAML-based identity provider uh, authentication into Cognito Pools. So that means um, Cognito Pools already provides um, all of support, but now we're actually adding SAML. Um, so this essentially means that you can go and use your uh, Cognito um, SDK that you would use for your application development at the moment uh, and now be able to use Microsoft Active Directory in the first instance. We're going to be adding more later. Uh, so support SAML 2.0 Federation to be able to find out uh, and let a user log in with the credentials from Microsoft Active Directory. So this now basically allows you know the built-in functionality of what we call IDPs, um, which is basically uh, identity providers. Uh, so you can basically reference third parties, in this case, Active Directory. Uh, so by using this mechanism, um, your applications will get a an access token uh, to be able to access your resources. Um, and if you are going to use Active Directory as an example for, or perhaps as we move forward, other uh, third-party SAML providers, uh, you'll be able to actually get things like usernames and passwords um, and uh, all that good stuff being taken care of by the service. Uh, so when you do actually go ahead and use the external provider, um, it also can return things like name and email addresses, which can also be added as attributes you know, key value pairs, if you like, uh, into the actual uh, Cognito user pools, which are uh, which can be passed to your application um, as the user is actually logging in at different phases. So this basically now gives you um, a native and federated users access into your uh, user profiles uh, to be able to you know receive the authentication tokens once somebody has signed in. So Rust basically means that it's making it easier to build essentially against a single uh, SDK like Cognito. Uh, and then have all of the yucky, mucky stuff happening behind the scenes, taken care of by the service. Because uh, in the past, people would be, you know, you know, providing, you know, links back and forth between different backend systems, uh, which really can be a very complicated process. Yeah. Now, Pete, take a quick breath and then keep going. Because while you've got federated single sign-on and SAML in your head, tell mm -hmm. us how that is now supported with QuickSight. Yes, so QuickSight now supports Federate Single Sign-On using SAML 2.0. So uh, for those of you who haven't actually played with QuickSight, it's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very fast cloud-powered business analytics service from us that helps you build visualizations really quickly to be able to get insights from your data. Uh, so that's, that's a mouthful. But now what we've now added to that service is the ability to be able to go against uh, third-party backend stores, as we just talked about in Cognito Pools, uh, to be able to perhaps use Active Directory as a means of being able to gain access uh, into the QuickSight reports. Uh, now, the cool thing about that is it allows um, administrators to be able to you know, use, use the AD environments as a security control uh, to provide access to users and also control which uh, location or device is being used to access your QuickSight reports. Um, so the nice thing about this also is that through this federation, 
um, uh, you can actually gain access and give your users access straight into the QuickSight reports without having to pre-provision them uh, by hand beforehand. If they are already yeah. in the directory itself, uh, they can already start to be essentially self-service with everything. So uh, the federation can also be enabled via 2.0 with other providers outside of Microsoft Active Directory. Uh, you can use Okta, you can use Ping Identity uh, or, or Shibboleth. So all of these can now be used uh, to get your insights much, much quicker in a much more controlled way. Awesome. That is great. I love that. Now, while you're on a roll, keep going. Tell us about... <laughs> I need some water soon. <laughs> I'm just loving listening to your dulcet tones. Um, tell us about the AWS serverless application model now supporting AWS X-Ray. Mm, so this is more for the microservice uh, developers amongst you. Um, and that is, so AWS service application model or AWS SAM um, basically is an extension on top of CloudFormation, which we've made available in a Git repository. And it's really cool to be used for rapidly deploying microservices because in your configuration you can say hey i also want to have a table i want to deploy this lambda function i want an api gateway um, and we've now introduced the ability to say hey we would like to turn on aws x-ray um, and i've mentioned x-ray in the past so x-ray helps you analyze and debug your distributed applications so you can basically identify root causes of performance bottlenecks or, or errors now in your Lambda functions. Uh, but you can be used for a whole lot more other things. So when you turn this on, um, essentially you, start, you will start to see um, in your AWS X-Ray service map, which is a graphical view of what's going on in your architecture, you'll be able to now see um, how much time has been spent inside the actual Lambda service. In other words, you know, the start and stop times when the um, Lambda uh, service actually is invoked. And then you'll be able to see things, how much time has actually been spent inside of your execution time of your micro function there in Lambda. And then also see your downstream service calls, which is really, really important because if you want to visualize how your Lambda function is performing, whether it's passing or potentially failing, uh, you can see how long it takes. Uh, you know, many a time people have been putting traces themselves into uh, uh, CloudWatch logs, which also get outputted from your Lambda function. But now you can do it all in a very simple way by going all the way to your AWS uh, service application model, your SAM, uh, to turn that feature actually on. Fantastic, Pete. But there's, awesome. but there's more. But there's more. If you do want to turn that on, you don't actually have to use SAM, by the way. Uh, so for those of you who are happy to hop into the, the console or potentially uh, call it through the API, you can actually go and turn on tracing on your Lambda functions now. Um, so that's really cool because that will then give you lots and lots of insights like I said, into you know, how your Lambda services are actually performing. Uh, but yeah, the whole inclusion of SAM now gives you the ability to go all the very, to the far left, if you like, to when someone writes the code and creates the, um, the, temp the template uh, to then deploy it. But yes, yeah, so you get lots of all the good stuff of uh, getting visibility of Lambda executions, as well as all of the execution times of your individual functions. So yeah, lots and lots of micro visibility into how your code is executing. Now, I'm going to change gears. I'm going to let you do some talking and have you talk to us a little bit about IAM policies and summaries. 
Now, I know the reason that you want me to talk about this because this is a feature that you are completely disinterested in. And, and you used to make jokes with me about no, this feature as well last well, time we got announced. <laughs> well, let me describe what it is and then I'll tell you why I think you, you, don't, you don't care for it much. So as you know, listeners, IAM policies, you used to have to write in JSON. And not everyone loves JSON uh, as much as Dr. Pete does. So back in March, we introduced policy summaries, which really made it a lot easier to, at a glance, understand the permissions that were in your policies. And now we've added a couple of extra features to kind of make that a bit um, a bit more usable. So the first thing is that now you can see in the summaries, you can see the resources that you've defined uh, in each policy. Secondly, you can see which services and actions are implicitly denied, which is nice. So that allows you to see the remaining actions available for a service that's got limited access. And then thirdly, and this is, this is the one that I love the most, is that it allows you to much more easily identify potential typos in your policies because now you can see which services and actions are unrecognized by IAM. So for me, Pete, I know this doesn't yep. apply to you because you read and write and dream in JSON natively, but for, for mere mortals like myself, it was always a typo that would cause me dramas. Uh, and now... You can see those typos because you can see what what is not being seen by IAM. So you can kind of drill in straight into that. So that just makes that feature much more, a little bit richer, a little bit easier to use. Um, and so, um, yeah, listeners, if it's, you're into it's IAM really policies, cool. go at it. Yeah. And, and look, I have to confess, Russ, I, I have changed my mind now. Um, I, I no longer when I read raw JSON. I, I, I do actually I like this feature very much. I don't no, no, it's it's actually no. I got I got to stress a point here. It's it's very cool because quite often when you look at a policy, which says you know allow star so asterisks everything, um, this will actually give you some really fine grained human friendly visibility of what you're actually allowing your users to access, as well as denying. And on the uh, fat fingering on uh, Jason, yes, it happens to all of us, Russ. Uh, and uh, yeah, a good editor always helps, but this is a, a, actually a really cool way of uh, having it validated. If you're doing those edits inside um, the console, you know, occasionally you will, you know, push the occasional wrong button uh, and you'll think it's okay. But uh, yeah, this now gives you that round trip of, ha, huh, actually, you know what? There is something wrong with that. And we'll highlight that with a nice, uh, nice graphic telling you there is something wrong with the policy. So you get that instant or near instant feedback um, the moment you actually look at the policy. So I'm actually, uh, I'm a big convert. I love it. Well, that's good to hear, Pete. I'm glad you changed your mind on that. Now we're almost out of time, but. I wanted you to just take us out with a quick announcement about a couple of new certification exams. Yes, and uh, I'm very excited because uh, I love our certifications and I think they're so important. In fact, um, I was reading some interesting stats um, that uh, AWS certifications will actually get you to the front of the line. Uh, we're actually finding more and more, this is all around the world, mind you, uh, having AWS certification gets you uh, more job opportunities because there is actually um, a bit of a global shortage uh, in, in specialists who actually have certification. So for those of you who are holding certifications, uh, well done, you are going to the front of the line. But for those of you who are towing the line, thinking whether you should, I would highly encourage you to actually go and get certified. Now, if you've already been certified and you're looking for more certification, so more badges of honor, We've just announced and released two new certifications, and these are specialty 
certifications, right? So these are a little bit different. Uh, you do need to hold at least one associate AWS certification uh, before you can go and attempt one of these. Uh, and the first one that I'm going to talk about is the AWS Certified Advanced Networking Specialty, uh, which is really, really important because uh, we also do call out for this particular um, certification that it does help if you've actually had five years hands-on experience out in the field doing networking because you're going to take that and you need to put it into the context of AWS. And the other one, which I think you'll like, is uh, the AWS Certified Big Data Specialist. Nice, nice. Um, which, which again has the same five year, you know, playing with big data, not just with AWS, but also outside of that. Um, and by the way, both of these do take a fair bit of time. There is a, a three, this, these are both three hour exams. Um, but if you do go through these, you do get the badge of honor. Uh, like with other certifications, you get access to, you know, uh, you know, uh, branding, free practice exams. Uh, you can also get uh, access to branded merchandise. Uh, there's actually a website you can hop on once you've been certified to be able to go and buy some cool kit uh, and show everybody that you are certified because we can also give, we will also give you logos and badges if you do attend uh, some of our public events that we've been holding around APAC and around the globe as well. Pete, you said you get access to branding. Uh, please tell me that you don't actually get a hot iron <laughs> placed on you with the, is that is that what you're referring to that hey I'm not a child yeah, so you know what? I, I just, you've given me some pretty crazy thoughts. It's like branding that, that steak. No, you're not going to get the, uh, the the red hot bit of metal on your skin. It's actually um, you can actually get access to the logos in an electronic format, um, so that you can put them at the bottom of your emails, uh, or potentially uh, have them somewhere else online, so that people can actually see that you are carrying the badge of honor of being a, a well and truly bona fide certified AWS specialist. Fantastic. Well, thanks for that, Pete. And uh, thanks, listeners, for tuning in once again. We hope that you enjoyed this show. Please give us any feedback that, uh, that you can, and uh, we will attempt to, uh, to put that into the show. And uh, we will see you next time. All the best, guys. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Signing off, this is Russ. And this is Dr. Pete. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends. Tell your colleagues and tune in again to learn more about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to the AWS Tech Chat through iTunes, SoundCloud, or by Googling AWS Tech Chat.